and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visibview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at The Farm's official store, which is at The Farm Podcast, all one word, thefarmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for The Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. All right, folks, today's guests are the dynamic duo behind the great Conspiranormal podcast, which I've been a guest on a time or two. I give you folks Adam Sane and Sergio Stevenson. Well, guys, it's nice to have you all back on the farm again. How are you doing tonight, gents? We are doing, doing well. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Nothing beats having some beet stew on the uh, stove and ready to eat it once we finish up here, so perfect uh dinner for a cool uh fall night with the fire going all right and we got another guest joining us here too making his triumphant return to the farm he is the editor-in-chief of threshold journal of interdisciplinary consciousness studies scholar in virtual residence at windbridge institute and the founder of the liminal analytics applied research collaborative folks i give you guys david metcalf david thank you so much for dropping by again tonight as well sir yeah, it's great to be here, and I think that you are one of the few people who have smoothly said the full title of Threshold, so well done. You That's actually to... amazing. It's, it's sort of a farm tradition that I have to fuck up something in the introductions. I, I mean, I actually feel disappointed now that I said it properly. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I stumble on it. I know the last couple of things I've done, it was it was a mouthful, so you did, you did a good job. That was, that's impressive. Remarkable. That's probably the first time that's ever happened in the introductions on the farm. All right. Strange Realities 2023 kicks off yes. this weekend. So what better time for a preview? Well, Halloween will actually unfold beforehand, i.e. tomorrow. Everybody loves horror movie recommendations for Halloween, right? Well, fortunately, we can talk strange realities and horror movies in the same outing as they are closely related in a certain sense, certainly on the spiritual level. In fact, David's presentation is centered around the great horror hosts of days past and present. He's going to give us a sneak preview of that well, of his chat and that regard. And from there, we are going to tackle the horror movies proper. And there may even be a sneak preview or two of my chat as well. So on that note, let us start the show. Looking for something to do after Halloween is over? Are you into the strange, bizarre, and unusual? On November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, the Strange Realities Conference is coming back to Nashville, Tennessee and streaming online. Come join us for three days exploring mysteries, the supernatural, the occult, weird history, and more. Featuring lectures, presentations, and workshops by Tim Banal, Zach Hunt, Leslin Vance, Bryn Collier, Tobias Whalen, Brent Rains, 
Joshua Cutchen, Kiki Dombrowski, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Christopher Ernst, Aaron Gullius, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Mallory Samwitzki, Soraya Azkath, and special guest Steve Berg as your Master of Ceremonies. Make sure to join us for the fun and informative weekend online and at SIR Nashville November 3rd and 4th and online only November 5th. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. So, David, your talk at Strange Realities 2023 is centered around the arcane subject of horror hosts. I was rather surprised at how far back this subject goes. So can you give us a bit of a preview of its origins? Yeah. um, So I'm going to be kind of tracing it back. um, Probably not to like the as far back as I could go, but for just in terms of what we see in the 20th century horror host. Um, I think you can probably trace it back to what was called uh, Theater Libre, uh, which then became Grand Guignol uh, Theater in France. Um, and it's really interesting to see how similar some of the themes that crop up um, once horror movies became syndicated on television, which is where the horror host comes in, uh, how that their role in as the host uh, kind of plays into a long tradition of using comedy um, to kind of buttress things that would otherwise be censored by the society. So in the the grand well in the the theater libre, what what they did, um, and that was the precursor to the Grand Guignol theater, theater, which is kind of the the theater of violence in France, which became popular um, in the early twentieth century. I think it finally closed down in the 60s, but um, had a, a fairly long run there. But Theater Libre uh, would present... Is theater of Cruelty, or is that a separate one that I'm thinking of? Theater of Cruelty is a theory of uh, Antonin Artaud. So okay. also French, um, but but different. Um, the Yeah, and I, I could talk a little bit about that too. Um, but I, did, I don't know if it... I mean, it all sort of blends in to some extent. I mean, Artaud's... Uh, idea of theater of cruelty was basically that the ultimate theater was life and that um, the performance of true theater would actually create the things that were being performed. So he has a a famous uh, moment where he gives a a speech on the plague and he enacts the plague to the point where people start leaving feeling ill um, because of his enactment of the the plague symptoms. Um, So he was really big on the idea of kind of contagion that you know performance itself can cause the things that are being performed um which you know would could fit in with some of the stuff i, mean, I think we're going to talk later about the exorcist um and some of the cursed movies and that and and that in a sense carries that sense of contagion uh to it but with uh with grand guignol and uh theater libre the the theater libre itself what it what was interesting about it was that they were taking some of the the sort of lurid like crime stories that people may be familiar with from the the 19th century um like jack the ripper right like became famous because of newspaper accounts of the murders in Whitechapel, um and they're pretty pretty violent and and wild um varney the vampire is a not a 
it's not a, a journalistic report, but it's an example of the kind of stuff that was was happening in the 19th century with sort of pulp, pulpy, popular, the penny dreadful um, type stuff. Yeah, the penny dreadful type stuff, um, and they are really graphic. And I mean, they're they're it's it's amazing. You look at them now, and you know, to think that this was around, you know, in a time that was a little bit more conscious of of censorship and that kind of thing. And th these things are are pretty grotesque um and and graphic and the the theater libre brought that to the theater so they would take these crime reports and then create theatrical uh you know performances that were based on the crime reports or kind of slice of life but slice of life um more in the sense of uh what was happening on the street so more street life i mean almost like uh you know what you would think of with like gangster rap or something like that right but uh in the theater um and then grand guignol took that to the next level where it specifically it it kind of took the slice of life thing but it was totally focused on madness death murder uh a lot of um eyeballs being gouged out and they really it, within the theater they were able to um do some amazing things developing special effects for theater um which hadn't been around because the goal of the grand guignol was to create the most realistic performance of these these murders and that um but what i think ties into the horror host thing is that they had early on in the grand guignol tradition they had and the grand guignol was a specific theater too um it was a it was a theater that was actually built in uh, not, not an abandoned, but a, a no longer used uh, church. So it had a, a specific atmosphere to it. You can imagine going to a, you know, a, a church that's no longer used for religious services, but is performing these plays of murder and madness and death and, and torture and stuff. Um, but they had this thing called the hot and cold showers. So you would have a comedic skit that would be followed by a really graphic, gory skit. Um, that was the comedic skits would be, you know, aiming towards realism, but still sort of a funny slice of life, um, a little bit lighter. And then it would move into the next skit, which would be something more violent, visceral, and direct. Um, and the horror host sort of plays that part. Um, a lot of the stuff that I've seen written or talked about with the horror hosts. Um, it's interesting because, you know, obviously Vampyra, um, Melia uh, and Nermi, um, Mela, let's see, I'm, I'm bad at pronouncing things. That's why I was impressed with your ability to get through Threshold. Um, Mela Nermi um, with Vampyra in 1954 was kind of the first of what we know of as the television horror host. And she did it um, based off of kind of the Charles Adams character which later would become known as morticia when the the tv show the adams family came out but in the comics which were uh earlier the uh was an unnamed character and uh mela took that character and dressed up uh as morticia just to to be easy about it as morticia adams um kind of adding a bit more bondage to it a little bit more counterculture flair um and she got picked up by a, a local television producer in LA and because they needed a host to host these uh, basically to fill the air, as she put it. And that's the title of my talk is they needed uh, something to dress up the trash at midnight because they were showing these syndicated movies, which were not necessarily the best. It wasn't what we think of 
uh, as what the horror hosts were showing because uh, those universal movies like Dracula and Frankenstein um, and then later the the Corman movies and all the movies that people now would think of as being syndicated horror shows, uh, movies, um, those weren't available yet. So these were more of the kind of stuff you would get in the dollar bin, um, you know, than they were sort of the, the classic horror stuff. And uh, she used this character to to introduce the the things, but there was a lot of vaudeville in it, um, a lot of comedy, and it sort of played that part of lightening what was being shown, because I think one of the things that's really important to point out is that until the 70s, there was no horror genre as we know it, and um, the history of horror was consistently one of censorship, of public outrage, of fear, um, while at the same time making a ton of money. So what I think is really interesting with these these horror hosts when they come out is the fact that they sort of provide that buttress to these movies, which, you know, depending on what was being shown, could have been censored at the time they were being shown in the theaters, but here they are on television, right? Um, but the, you know, so with the Grand Guignol, with this hot and cold shower kind of concept, this theatrical concept, which also moves into vaudeville and cabaret and that, um, it was also drawing on a long history, I guess long is a bad word, but but a history that was established at that point of radio theater. Um, and radio theater, uh, there was a numerous, I mean, innumerable horror or mystery thriller themed radio shows. And a lot of them had themed hosts. Um, the EC comics, people are probably familiar with the Crypt Keeper from, you know, uh, Tales from the Crypt, the, you know, what became a television show and a movie and that. But the EC comics had these characters that acted as hosts that were directly derived from the radio shows. Um, the whole development of EC comics was taking the radio shows and turning them into uh, you know, a, a comic format. And in 1954, when Vampire was coming out, these comics were, you know, flooding the newsstands. And very shortly after that, um, Vampire only lasted one year, got into trouble with the fact that she didn't want to get rid of her intellectual property rights to the character. She got taken off the air. But um, by the time she goes off the air, these horror comics are still around. There's this concept of this, these hosting, these horror tales, these anthologies. But what's really interesting is that the horror comics then get censored, right? And so the the censorship of the horror comics leads to the creation of the, the comic book authority. Um, you know, now you can see the, the approved sign on comics, Marvel and DC and that they're all approved. Um, and that's where, you know, in the 80s and 90s independent comics or you think in the 60s and 70s the you know the kind of uh french comics that Arkham was doing and that um you know those things existed on the sidelines of these the censorship um but it was a big deal and so you know once we have these things coming out on television they're essentially showing what are you know i mean these are movies that were censored um especially once you get into the 60s and the 70s it becomes more and more a case where television is showing things that theaters are <laughs> having a hard time playing. Um, and so to sort of, sort of buttress that, it's really interesting to have these comedic hosts come out that, you know, kind of uh, clear the way for the movie to be okay to watch, you know? 
Well, it's interesting, too, because I believe um, concurrently you also had the rise, like what, the late 50s, early 60s of like um, the Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock presents um, essentially these, you know, sort of uh, host oriented uh, suspense and science fiction shows that frequently did incorporate horror in. And would you see that as sort of part of this tradition as well? Yeah, there. I mean, it's a it's all sort of flowing from the same stream. Um, one of the interesting things with you know something like Twilight Zone, um, some of the writers for that, uh, you know, were being drawn into stuff like the Twilight Zone. You know, like Richard Matheson. Yeah, I was about to say right? Matheson, yeah. um, Robert Block, right? Robert Block, who wrote Psycho. Uh, you know, I mean, there's Amicus, uh, which is a British uh, film production company. That was making a lot of anthologies in the in the 70s they were doing a lot of just straight up robert block anthologies where the entire anthology would all be robert block stories um so there's this amazing mix between the people who are writing for like weird tales you know and the uh, sort of pulp anthologies and then the um the people who are writing for television and writing for the twilight zone and that um i think that it's it's kind of a it's two different streams hitting well it's all sort of flowing from the same the same source material you know um but they're different aspects of it because i think one of the things to really highlight is that the only reason any of this stuff exists is because it made so much money the twilight zone actually wasn't um it wasn't that successful of a TV show in its first run in terms of uh, viewership and the the studios wanting to keep it going. Um, but it then became in syndication and an incredibly huge hit, which we see in some of the movies as well, where they come out, they don't really do good in the box office, then they go to video or something and it becomes huge and a cult, you know, a cult favorite. Um, Twilight Zone was real similar. That's exactly what happened with Star Trek too. Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly the you know, and so, um, so, and that that kind of goes to the fact that these are niche, you know, these are hitting a niche audience. But when you hit it right, they do amazing. I mean, one of the things. So when Dracula, right in 1931, when Dracula comes out, hugely controversial. Um, Universal was unsure if they actually wanted to put it out. There was a lot of stipulations on having it made. Um, it's actually framed as a romance. If you look at the the early uh, you know press releases and promotions for it, it's actually themed as a as a as a romantic kind of come see it on Valentine Valentine's Day movie. Um, not how we picture it today at all, because now we have the established genre of horror. But um, at the time, it was it was shown as a, a strange romance, right? Um, Frankenstein was billed as a as a monster show because the Frankenstein monster, right? Um, But it too was kind of framed more as a fantasy or a gothic tale. Um, And, you know, terror was was a word that was used, but this idea of horror as we know it wasn't really there. Um, But these movies were were heavily watched by, um, you know, Congress and by studios and by uh, censors to make sure that they weren't violating uh, social norms. And the fear was that, again, this contagion idea that these movies were showing this this alternate, you know, world of, of evil and that, and oftentimes mocking religion or, you know, Frankenstein is famous for having been censored um, in the uh, the scene where, uh, you know, 
Victor Frankenstein is saying it's alive, the actual line is um, something like, it's alive, my God, I finally know what it's like to be God, it's alive. And they took out the whole God part. They were like, no, we're not going to do that. And then in an interesting tie into the horror hosts, um, I think it was Frankenstein that had actually uh, a beginning clip to it where um, they had someone, you know, actually speaking to the movie and how it was a, a movie about someone who violated the the divine order. And it was a movie that showed the, you know, the retributions that that could happen if if that occurred. Um, so there again, you have this this host figure coming out, um, you know, to sort of buttress the movie, you know, but these things made so much money when Dracula came out. Um, the way that Universal sold it after they they put it out was basically like Dracula will bring your theater money. Um, and that's all the press. If you look at all the press from the actual movie industry, it's just they're shocked at how much money this made. Same thing with Frankenstein. Frankenstein made a ton of money. Um, and what they found then when once the those were pre-code horror movies, once the code came in, uh, you start getting things that are a little bit more watered down. Um, Wasn't it like it, Freaks that kind of broke the mold, if I'm not mistaken? The really, uh, that really kicked up the desire for censorship? Because that is a, I mean, even to this day, that is a no, really disturbing movie. No, I mean, honestly, like if you look at the pre-code movies, like Freaks was, Freaks is disturbing. Like no doubt it is disturbing. It yeah. definitely did cause issues. But if you look at the pre-code like movies, like they were all i mean it's all like it's all things that you're just like wow like that was that's a whole lot of stuff going on that i did yeah not it wasn't necessarily on. one movie it was yeah no it was it was, it was, it was over time and it just they would always push the boundaries since there was no code yeah and the haze code, the haze code finally comes in about 1934 but it's like right. they it was several movies of just uh, it was more sexual material than it was anything like horrific. and drug use and drug and use drug use yeah, yeah there was a lot of uh right. yeah crime movies and that were pretty pretty violent and visceral and it was also because a lot of the um you know it was the counterculture butting up against the the producers who were putting these things out i mean a lot of the a lot yeah, of the, the writers Counterculture uh, of the twenties, yeah. yeah. The counterculture of the twenties, you know, that kind of Weimar like cabaret lifestyle, right. drug use, like uh, heavily. Yeah, like, that was really where the sort of, I mean, kind of the contemporary horror movie in a lot of ways really did sort of come out of the Weimar Republic. Um, you know, I'm thinking obviously like Nosferatu, what the cabinet of Doctor mm -hmm. Ari. I mean, all that, right, all that. absolutely, yep, yeah, yeah. Drawing on that, the the sort of expressionist filmmaking styles. Yeah, that's that, that was definitely yeah. And it, so if you think about basically, this was an inlet for all of those things to reach mass audiences. And so the <laughs> stuff like the Hayes Code was put in to kind of try to t t tap that off a little bit, you know. And then what's funny, though, is that so they, you know, Universal pulls back from making uh, as you know, that's where you get like the Elvis Costello, you get the um, not Elvis Costello, you get the the Abbott and Costello um meet frankenstein and dracula and all that stuff so those movies come in and sort of uh that's the next run you know it's kind of toning it down and making it funny yeah. and, and that it um, tames it a little bit tames it a little bit and yeah. kind of pulls it out from like this isn't so serious haha <laughs> you know like we're not really talking about this stuff right um, the the comics code is even more extensive than the haze code though the haze code was um was uh what would you say they would the 
the the studios basically it was kind of like a handshake deal where they they said they would censor themselves and you know as long as they didn't they would send it to the 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 censors and they would look at it and everything but the studios were doing a lot of it on their own whereas the comic code actually said like you cannot publish anything with werewolves no vampires no undead like no you know no zombies no uh witchcraft no i mean it was this huge list of things that you could not have no drug use no where's the fun in that religion yeah and that's where you get superheroes right superheroes come out of that because then like okay well what can you do you know okay well these people are irradiated and they have superpowers and it's not magic right um so uh um, good clean cut americans too. yeah, yeah good, good clean cut Captain from kansas America, you know he's not a not a werewolf it's an alien you know um yeah. so you get that kind of stuff and then when they finally do sort of lighten up on it then you get werewolf by night tomb of dracula for marvel but they're not the same thing as the horror comics were in their heyday um how long did that code did the comics code last how long was that it's still here i mean they still have stuff that's published under it yeah now they have independent comics and the the rules are different warren um james warren with creepy and eerie and all that uh really well and uh myron foss were two of the people that kind of figured out like hey if we don't call them comics if they're magazines (laughs) like they're illustrated adult magazines like then we can publish these things and so they continue yeah were essentially horror comics um and you know, I, I collected i collected swamp thing which was a horror comic and yeah, at one point at one point even there. in the 80s in the late 80s they put a mature warning on it you know so yeah and bernie wrightson did, yeah. did some amazing stuff and he did stuff for uh some of the the horror the actual horror comics as well right amazing illustrator um david um would you see somebody like the producer william castle as being part of the tradition of the horror host because if i'm not mistaken i didn't he tour around the country when he was showing his films in the theaters in the 50s and would kind of do the introductions and like what sometimes the the warning or where they would have the yeah. nerve you had to sign the waiver and what have you to go in yeah so the, that's all i mean that's the all tingler. Yeah, the Tingler and and that that had uh, the they would film if he wasn't uh, he may have gone to some of the premieres in that but they yeah he definitely had like a little a little spot in the front of the movie um, where he would be a character that came out and kind of introduced the movie and and sort of did that absolutely he was William Castle um, uh, you know Herschel Gordon Lewis like the these guys were master marketers and they were master showmen and. Um, they're they brought the horror to the sort of the the world right they brought it out into the theater but this this even that though universal was doing that stuff um from the launch of dracula and and frankenstein like the the level to which they created an atmosphere for these movies to be launched was amazing if you go back and look at the early like the 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 photos of these movie premieres um you know they they brought the theatrical element to actually going to these movies um and that became actually part two you know it was it was a part as well for when the shock theater package comes out in 1957 which is what leads to you know vampira does it without any script right like but in by 1957 when the actual movies that we think of being syndicated start getting syndicated which the with the shock theater package which included dracula Frankenstein, wolfman invisible man you know the universal monster classic stuff um shock theater actually came with a press book that told the the tv stations that picked up the syndicated package to do all that stuff 
right to go out and to to create kind of these theatrical experiences that would bring the audience into it which is which is also where the the horror hosts come into it but yeah william castle like absolutely fits within this this kind of role of the the horror mc um who bridges reality and fantasy and sort of makes it comfortable for the audience to enter these places you know and that's kind of going to be the theme of what i'm talking about is is showing the initiatory elements of this because you know you're dealing with censored topics you're dealing with sensitive topics topics that are taboo you're using humor and these figures to sort of bring people into it and make them comfortable with it but then they sit for you know from commercial break to commercial break or from interlude to interlude in these movies which especially by the time you get to the 70s i mean in the 70s by the time you get to the 70s they're showing all the AIP stuff, the American International uh, Pictures stuff, which is like uh, I was a teenage werewolf, but then also some of the more visceral, visceral exploitation stuff that they did. But also AIP was pulling in uh, foreign horror movies, right, like from Japan and that and from Italy um, and some of the, you know, like the, the European American co-productions and that kind of stuff, because all of this again it all goes back to money it was cheaper to get these movies from a foreign source than it was to pay the royalties on domestic products and so they would bring in these italian movies which you know you think of like the you know even the early like fulci stuff and the early uh you know the earlier gentle in that or even Sergio Leone, like those spaghetti westerns, like those are violent. And you think like this was on TV in the 60s, right? Like this is in the 70s where, you know, this was being introduced and sure they were edited to some extent, um, but compared to the television and the sitcoms and the, the presentation that was going on for what, you know, U.S. culture was supposed to be or British culture or whatever, you know, to have these movies being syndicated is fairly amazing. Um, and again, I think that the horror host plays a, a large part in the sort of um, inoculation of the society to what was actually being shown. You know, um, the first time that uh, Night of the Living Dead was shown on television, it was shown by um, the horror host in uh, San Francisco, whose name is escaping me at the moment, Bob Wilkins. Bob Wilkins um, on his Creature Features show actually showed the uh, the first showing of the Night of the Living Dead. Um, again, you know, now a lot of these movies like, oh, it's Night of the Living Dead, whatever. You know, that was that was a movie and it's it's famous for for what it is. But at the time, it was incredibly controversial. Um, and then to, you know, that movie comes out in the late sixties and then in the mid to late seventies, it's being shown on TV. Like that's just, that's an incredible shift in culture and an incredible entry point for, uh, you know, these, these things, which now become mainstream. Um, but again, at the time it was, you know, it's pretty amazing that that happened and it happened because of money. The studios were making so much money. The stations were making so much money. Um, Vampira was, when she came out in 54, was just a sensation. Uh, only shown on local L.A. television, right? Like, you you couldn't see Vampira outside of L.A. unless you saw her as a guest on a, a more widely syndicated show. Um, but she had a, a Life magazine profile. Um, because it was just so, so different and so shocking. 
Um, and it was, you know, Mela has a really interesting story about her relationship with the vampire character and how she felt that it, it actually was almost an, an entity of itself that came in and that she embodied and that embodied and then, you know, basically embodied her and possessed her. Um, and, you know, in some of her later interviews, Mela talks about, um, feeling as though she was on a mission to kind of, uh, fight a culture war, you know, to, to, to stop the kind of straight laced 1950s, like cold war Americana, um, and to provide this sort of bohemian opening for freedom of expression, freedom of sexuality, freedom of, you know, uh, you know, women's rights, and that kind of thing um, against this sort of staid 1950s leave it to beaver kind of thing that was right. being placed on the society. And she saw, you know, she was friends with James Dean and she saw James Dean as part of that. She saw Elvis and rock and roll. And that's the other thing you see rock and roll rising up at the same time, doing a lot of the same kind of things, making, building these bridges, pulling these, these different things in. I mean, if you think of the censorship on black culture, um, and yet rock and roll provides this entry point. So now suddenly you've got a bunch of, you know, white kids listening to black music um, and it's totally changing the way that they that they see life. And also, oh, were you going to say something, Adam? Well, I'm just going to point out that she was the original goth. And then I had a question to ask about her. Yeah, um, just really quick. One, yeah. one more thing on the, the rock and roll element. Um, you you have this this moment. 19 you know we 1940s right like mid 1940s late 1940s the the atomic moment right the the nuclear bomb goes off and that creates this sort of existential state in the culture where suddenly we could all die at any moment right and from that comes this sort of carpe diem attitude that you see in what becomes the teenager prior to the nuclear bomb there was no teenager there were there, that was not a, a marketable niche that wasn't a demographic but as soon as the nuclear bomb happens and people realize, and especially with the Cold War, amping that up of any moment you could die, um, it becomes a lot more important to experience everything you can at that moment. But it also then becomes a lot more ambiguous as to whether or not it even matters, right? And so this whole kind of attitude that comes out with the James Dean rebel without a cause, you know, Elvis, the, the hyper-sexualized image of Elvis and rock and roll and all of that, um, that all plays into this kind of existential crisis that happens after the nuclear bomb and you know vampira and mela sort of exist within that as these these characters you know because you know the whole thing with the adams family is it's a it's a dying aristocratic family right so it's this like this corpse-like aristocratic family that's existing past its you know past the time of the aristocracy um and you know or or maybe more of a like a 1920s kind of like uh gilded age family right but the you know this idea of of the wealthy and the rich no longer really having a place and sort of being ghosts almost you know um kind of plays into that that post-nuclear feeling uh where we all sort of exist in this this kind of wasteland you know not without real well without realizing you know what were you going to ask about vampire Adam? Well, so I have heard a couple of things about how she made her image. You know, I've, I've heard the comic book character 
you know that's that's the main thing i've heard i've also heard that she was inspired by some of these chicano girl gangs that were hanging yeah. around in la that of course had like straight black hair and some of them would paint their face kind of like do that like the white makeup uh, on their face Although, and i've heard yeah, that she was also inspired by she was also inspired somewhat by then but so she was inspired by some of the street culture of the time yeah absolutely i would i would totally yeah. believe i mean she was what she was the, um, what about the black dahlia too i was uh, wondering about that because she definitely had that sort of proto-gothic thing going on as well and obviously had been a huge media sensation in la from 47 i think up to about 50 or so yeah i, mean, I think it all i think it yeah. all mixes into it you know i mean like uh Mela was a, a coat check girl at the time when she uh created the vampire character and went to a, a hollywood party um so she was not i mean she was she was existing in that weird place where artists exist where you know you meet the the top of the culture and the bottom of the culture and everything in between you know and and she was an inc- i mean Mela Nermi really absolute genius i mean just just an absolute genius uh in terms of if 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 you have a chance i mean if you know and the folks listening like watch some of the documentaries about her and especially uh vampira and me which has some of the um the tapes that she recorded later in life when she was yeah. planning on writing a book yeah, um, i think i have seen that yeah yeah, I mean, she's just she's incredible and so observant of people's behaviors in that. Um, she, you know, very driven to to succeed and survive. I mean, because after the vampire show fizzled out and she got kind of like she her friendship with James Dean uh, led to her being accused of uh, a black magic curse that killed James Dean because of a photo that she had done by a grave that said, wish you were here. Uh, and it led to rumors and stuff like that. And she became kind of like persona non grata in Hollywood. Um, and her, her career pretty much ended at that point. I mean, then you've got, she was in a couple, a couple movies and as a sort of secondary cast character. Yeah. And then obviously Sex Edward, kittens go to college. She was in that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, but you wouldn't know it's her unless yeah. you were told because she was just in a, a lab technician or something like that it's just yeah yeah exactly exactly you know and and that uh she was later in life surviving on being a carpenter and doing installing linoleum uh she sold antiques Mm -hmm. she made fashion and stuff like that she made some costumes for for some rock bands and that at at a certain point uh, zappa had gotten some or something like that but yeah uh, she just had a will to survive and i mean you can see from the later interviews i mean this woman was just just brilliant you know um and i mean she was she lived into her 90s i believe i mean she lived a very long life 85 i think was, 85 uh, yeah yeah but yeah definitely like survived you know i mean that's it's just wild um and then you know that that power came through in the the vampire character um but and she also had drawn a lot from the bondage scene, you know, which yeah. was was kind of uh, coming out, you know, at the time. Yeah, and I think there's only what there's just a thirty second clip, and that's all that's left of the show. There's about fifteen minutes, I think. Yeah, 
yeah but it, yeah it was all keynote it, they had to do extensive re uh reworking of the kenotype stuff because it would yeah. be there's no actual film of it yeah uh, well, they, they would they would erase tapes yeah I mean, that's what unfortunately that's what they did back then yeah tragedy yeah yeah and so there's you know yeah there's no and that's the other amazing thing too you think of the fact that there's there's no footage you know now there's now there's right. footage a little bit of footage that you can see but for the most of the time the vampire has been so well known that all that existed was like maybe if somebody found a copy of the life magazine thing or heard about it. i mean and then you've got like the you know where she influences things like the bobby bear song vampira or the misfits right as yeah. the vampire song um but well uh, the most you see of her is plan nine from outer space yeah and that's plan probably nine the from most outer space. you see yeah. of her as that character yeah yeah exactly yeah and she doesn't have a speaking part because she thought the line nope. she thought the script was so bad she nope. refused to, to actually read the script which is funny because christopher lee did uh the same thing in some of his his later dracula roles he would get the script and be like okay i feel <laughs> i feel obligated to be in this movie because i know the i know the cast and crew and i i respect them and i want them to have jobs but i'm not going to say these lines so you yeah. just the silent christopher lee dracula because he wouldn't he wouldn't read the line <laughs> Remind me as we go on to talk a little bit about Highgate Vampire, since we're talking about film. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think that, you know, I mean, that's amazing. And there's the, yeah, no no real footage, you know, and she becomes this huge cultural figure. And I think that just shows how how important the this this idea of not necessarily the, not not the horror host itself, but whatever the whatever is kind of standing behind the horror host has a very important place in culture, you know, and I think it plays into like the clown figure, right? I mean, it's the the grave digger in Hamlet kind of thing, um, right. you know, could sort of bringing this, this kind of, uh, again, kind of uh, softening the blow of death, you know, and she, she obviously very closely tied death and sex together and, and, and played that role knowingly, you know, she, she laughs about the, some of the footage is the the very beginning of the show when she comes down the corridor and there's smoke and everything and then she gets up to the camera and then she screams and then says uh mm -hmm. scream relaxes me so mm -hmm. and in later yep. interviews she was like you know it was very obvious when i was screaming that it was you know both a scream of terror and an orgasm at the same time you know um and that was what she was playing on uh you know, and and again, you can see in the kind of like vaudeville patter that she has. Uh, if you watch the the little bit of footage that there is, um, again, very similar to like the tales from the crypt, crypt keeper. You know, kind of a goofy, campy, one-liner vaudeville sort of uh, borscht belt humor, um, playing into just really really morbid kind of topics, um, and then that obviously gets amped up a whole lot more. With the later horror hosts once the shock theater package in 57 comes out and you get john zachary um you know and some of the other the other hosts that became Gugliardi and um mervyn and in chicago and that or marvin um and well, they I, uh, uh, well i grew up with uh joe bob briggs so how do you get uh, how do you put joe bob into this racket and what is the extent of his legacy yeah so joe bob's interesting right because so by the 1980s the horror host was going away because it, and again like it's it's money and it's it's uh it's entertain i don't know like the entertain it's media culture right that's changing these things so the horror host exists because 
you had these syndicated packages you had dead airspace i mean the, basically they were super attracted to to putting these b movies out because they were cheap right or with the syndicated universal packages these were movies from 1931 through 1940s being shown in the late 50s so those were dead they were what were called vaulties and if they hadn't been syndicated they would have stuck in a vault until you know there was a you know uh, like an anniversary or something that they wanted to drag these things out and show them on a limited basis, but they were never really going to be seen again with the technology at the time. But once television starts to really become a thing, there's a ton of airspace. And so the stu- the the television stations were at a point where they had to figure out, well, do we hire more writers to write shows? I mean, we've got to produce the shows or how do we do this, right? Like, how do we fill airspace? And so the syndicated package was like a gift. So not only were they, when they started showing these horror movies, they were doing amazing, right? But they were also cheaper to do than actually running your own show. So a lot of the early horror hosts, um, you know, this they got the packages and they were like, well, we need a host, right? So the they just sort of happened. It wasn't like there was this big plan, like, okay, we're going to have these horror characters and, you know, they're going to do this stuff. It was improv. And it was a lot of times just people... You know, either you had a producer at the station who was like, hey, I know so and so and they're kind of kooky and like we can have them in makeup and and be the horror host, Uh, you know, or it was just people who worked at the station like weather, you know, weathermen or camera people or, you know, gaffers that looked goofy or and could sort of ham it up. And they would just stick them in a costume and there would be your host. Right. Um, John Zachary is famous for not having been interested in horror movies at all. Um, you know, maybe having seen them as a kid, like kind of having like the, yeah, when I was a kid, I saw these and they were scary kind of thing, but he was not a fan of horror movies. That wasn't his thing. He was just a character actor who had played, uh, a grave digger and they, you know, they had seen that and were like, I want that. That'll be good. Right. Play that character and, you know, add some more stuff to it. So this is very impromptu, right? Um, by the time the eighties come around and you get cable and you get, uh, you know, local stations have a lot more options and that the host isn't, you know, people are more used to horror at this point because it's actually a genre by the 80s. You have not only a genre in literature of horror, but you also have horror movies of just straight horror movies. They're not being soft sold as thrillers or gothic tales or gothic fantasy or dark fantasy. They're just straight up horror movies. People are used to it. So you don't quite need the host there anymore to kind of soften it. And it just, you know, it was a different culture uh, and, and totally. So when, uh, you know, Elvira comes out and Joe Bob Briggs come out, they're a different kind of species of of this this role. Um, Elvira was actually supposed to be Vampira, but um, Mela was, when she was working on the negotiations, um, had said she didn't want Cassandra uh, Pearson playing the part. And so... Uh, the studio was like, well, we'd rather have Cassandra play the part than you telling us what to do. So we're just going to make Elvira and not Vampira. Um, And then Elvira obviously became its own thing, you know. Um, But Joe Bob Briggs is interesting because he comes out, he starts out as a movie critic, like a reviewer, Um, but with this persona of Joe Bob Briggs, um, you know, his real name is John Bloom. Um, Joe Bob Briggs is a character that he's he's created. 
uh, to sort of be this Texas hillbilly who goes to drive-ins and really likes B-movies, but does the exact opposite to what the mainstream critics like Siskel and Ebert and that were doing, which was, you know, oh, how disgusting, and these are horrible, and, you know, these shouldn't be shown. Um, you know, the character of Joe Bob Briggs comes out and is like, these are great, and this is how many people get killed in this film, and this is how many tits you're going to see, and, you know, like, this is, the, so he rates them based on their their exploitation you know uh merits right and so he creates this character that does that and and he is writing that and then um he gets hired to do uh like a kind of live review for it and then eventually ends up on the movie channel doing joe bob's driving um and then later the tnt he comes in as the the later host for what was called monster vision um, but he's interesting because he is a critic, right? Like he's a critical voice. He's actually a, 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 a theorist of these movies. Like he's he's capable of analyzing them and talking about them and providing history to them. Whereas the horror host didn't really do that. Um, Bob Wilkins in San Francisco did do that to some extent. He would actually have people on and talk to them and that. Um, but the horror, the horror hosts that most people are familiar with and think about you know in terms of being a character um don't really have a critical insight onto the movies that they're showing they're usually making fun of it to some extent or playing along with it playing it up um but they're not really uh contextualizing it or talking about it whereas joe bob briggs actually does and has amazing insights into it um but it's kind of an it, it's an interesting development because he comes out later and as a sort of a more contextualizing critical voice um and then the internet happens right and so then the horror host becomes uh almost like a cargo cult now where there's a lot of people out there who are playing the part of horror host but the actual horror host itself doesn't have the same uh role you know there's no syndicated television to that that necessitates it um and you know the freebie and amazon right now have made a deal with universal to uh have access to a lot of the stuff that was in that original shock theater package and the son of shock package which was the second one um and you know and a lot of the aip stuff and a lot of the stuff that was syndicated back then is now available for free um so you don't really need a you know you don't need a host to do that so the hosts now like have them either they they play up that character to it and they they sort of uh you know play along with the movies as it happened but it doesn't have the same feel to it um or they play a more critical role where they're actually talking about the movies they're writing about the movies they're interacting with it and and joe bob you know falls kind of into that sort of critical thing although you know he does shutter did bring him back um and shutter's a, a, a horror streaming platform um that and they did bring him back to do the show as as kind of a thing and there's Svenguli too out of um chicago who's on me tv and he uh you know he's still doing his his same kind of Svenguli routine as the horror host uh his name is rick coase and um he uh he is very successful with keeping kind of the the standard uh horror host thing and becoming you know his his numbers are amazing there was actually a uh i don't know if it was a time 
Time magazine piece that was on him, or if it was Salon or what, but it was talking about his ratings um, recently because uh, it turns out that on some Saturdays, He's outperforming Fox, CNN, you know, and all, all the things you normally like hear about competing each, with each other for viewership. Um, Svenguli is wiping them all out in terms of viewership on MeTV, which is kind of, a, you know, a weird offshoot sort of station. Um, so for him to be able to pull in that audience is, is pretty impressive. But again, I don't, you know, like with Joe Bob and that, it it's interesting. There's sort of a their their next development of this um as opposed to the kind of horror host as initiatory figure where would you rank something like mystery science theater 3000 that's another kind of interim like later day thing um i remember when i first saw mystery science theater 3000 on i think it was even pre-comedy channel comedy central like whatever they were on before that yeah, um, it was like with the local station out of minnesota i think or something like that yeah maybe it wasn't that it wasn't that early there was like some midterm there was like a mid thing between oh like, yeah yeah you're right you're started right. on there was like another it was like i think it was maybe the comedy channel not comedy central or something i don't know i was in a hotel at, at a certain oh, point those a couple of stations merged to become comedy central yeah so. yeah so it was whatever they were like whatever it was before comedy central yeah. like i remember as a kid like seeing that and i was just blown away i was like what what on earth is this This is amazing you know um <laughs> you know in, this incredible show um you know and that's more sci-fi and stuff like that more of the creature feature kind of thing um it's really interesting like the you know where the where the host fits into what they show you know like how does the host character fit in with like the, the kind of stuff that they're that they're showing um but uh yeah, they they fit within that sort of the the hosting milieu, but again, kind of uh, a later day pastiche of what the original was, you know, um, in a different format. Because again, it was the cable format. They were uh, they were on a cable format, which is a a different deal than sort of the local the local station, and the culture was a lot more ready for for it. I think. Well, also on the notion of cable, I, you know, again, being a kid of the 80s, I got to bring up USA, um, Up All Night with Gilbert Godfrey and those previous Friday the 13th marathons. Do you see them as uh, fitting into this tradition? Yeah, I mean, it's all, you know, it's all how how horror was syndicated. I don't know if that's the, it's not, it doesn't have the same kind of host pattern, though. There's a really specific, interesting kind of flavor to the, that, that 60s 70s maybe into the early 80s but most of them started dying out in the early 80s so from like 57 to maybe like 1982 there's yeah. a really specific kind of flavor maybe 84 because i think uh i think 84 is when creature features ended in san francisco um but like that that period is like really the kind of the the run of the the horror host yeah uh, as a as a thing and then after that you get these other kind of iterations that play similar you know a similar part but again that's also from 57 to about 84 is the development of horror as we know it right like that's that's really like the that moment in time where suddenly like horror becomes a thing um you know over those years you get you get the um you get psycho and you get uh the well the the growth of the exploitation movie right um the development of of those movies 
and then into exorcism. Kind of more like it finally, you know, broke its connection, I think, to sort of the gothic genre. Because up to that point, yeah. you know, with yeah. like the universal stuff, it's still set like in these old European castles and stuff. Where, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, like Psycho kind of put it not necessarily in suburbia, but like, you know, I mean, a rundown, uh, you know, hotel off the highway. Yeah. I mean, anybody in that area could Well, well so no, it's interesting, Stephen. I think that that's a, that's a good point. Psycho actually did put it into suburbia for that time period. Because if you think about it, she's she's actually the main character is in, is uh, is from the city, and she's on a she's on a trip with the money, right? Yeah, like she's and like she's, a secretary. She's right? Yeah, and she's taking the money and she's going, and so she's actually coming from the city and then she's traveling, which at that time period, like Route sixty six and you know that that whole thing, like that was all that idea of the road trip was so huge, and here you had Psycho not only you know the idea of the serial killer right which was kind of fresh and new and and that uh as a as a sort of genre trope and and also as a cultural did thing. they even really have the concept of the serial killer no even in the 1960s? no no it was being developed like the fbi was developing the concept of the serial killer um and then you know and that's the interesting thing too i mean if we think of this period in time of the development 1957 to about 84 so many things are shifting in culture and changing you know um and making things that in the past seemed taboo and and forbidden uh something that people had to think about you know more and more um just the the changes i mean obviously like you know 69 when you got manson and all that stuff but um just the you know the it create the yeah, just changes in culture that really make the horror movie a lot more acceptable to people than it than it had been. I, I want to make a point that I made on the show uh, when on my show when I had David on just a few days ago, and you guys will hear this well probably after this is posted. But I think the main one of the the what interests me about the horror host phenomenon is that it would it had such a local flavor and you you were able to have horror hosts unique to each different town or each different market and that's something that i don't think we're ever going to see ever again yeah and that that again is the you know it's the change in the media landscape right i mean it was was local centralized tv it was coming from a broadcast station uh, and it had to be with you had to be within range of the of the the broadcast you know um and that and that's the thing too i mean if you look at the the press book for the shocks the shock theater package is just amazing because uh you know it's telling them to do that kind of stuff to to take the host make it local make it so that the host appears that uh you know um that local events you know the ribbon cuttings right like you have <laughs> yeah <laughs> your local horror host doing the ribbon cutting um you know, i mean that's you know and then like zachary it's awesome if you go on youtube and look up zachary he hosted like american bandstand as like at certain points yeah, right because he's right. in the nbc studio and like or whatever the studio or cbs or whatever it was like in new york so he's you know he's right there he was talking about there's a funny interview with him talking about how pat boone was a big fan of of the zachary show and how and the character and how was he he based out of david was it was it uh new jersey or something no he started out um i want to say he started out in pennsylvania 
and then he moved yeah that's what i was thinking yeah and he moved to new york then he then it became big enough where new york scooped him up and that was the thing too is that the 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 ones who became bigger uh the bigger stations would then suck them up and and take it because it was uh they were a huge draw you know um it's really interesting uh you know again kind of looking at the local centralized um and and money the the shock theme for the la shock theater show the the syndicated show in in la there's a specific theme that they had written for it and the theme was put out on a vinyl single that was given away by some car dealership that was sponsoring the show right because that was the other thing too was you were drawing in low what they found was was that if you had these syndicated shows you could have let's say you had a syndicated show that just had a title so chiller theater right so you had a local chiller theater and they were going to syndicate things and at the beginning of it you had a creepy voice that was like chiller theater blah and then like the movie would start right well then you had all your commercial spots that you could put sponsors in well if you had a hosted show you could have chiller theater blah and then the host comes on and says oh and you know blah 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 and this local car thing ha 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 here's a joke about the car thing in horror movies so then you could have more sponsors that's more money right so the horror host also provided the the ability to make money off of sponsorships but um then there were also the the money that could be made off of the individual products that were available to it so like the the shock theater theme sold as a single was uh the in this this one instance this car dealership bought the singles to hand out as a promotional thing but them buying the singles made the single like reached like gold record status or something like that and the person who wrote the single then got this insane amount of royalties right and so those people were then able to either retire off of that or like you know do something else and go on and fund other projects um the uh bobby pickett and monster mash after he did monster mash he didn't have to work again the the royalties he got off of monster mash was so crazy that um you know he was it was an independent release so he had all the rights to it and whenever it was played and it was played a hell of a lot as everybody knows um he got the royalties for it so this wasn't like pennies, you know, this wasn't like a fraction of a penny on a Spotify stream. This was like serious cash every time these things were played, um, you know. And so if you wrote the theme for Shock, then every time the show played, you got royalties. Every time they sold a single, you got royalties. If they wanted to do a promotion with the single and they had to buy, you know, X units of the, the, the LP, then you got paid. So, I mean, there's a lot of money being exchanged in these things. And then in a local economy sense, you know, local sponsors would get more people. Like, would you rather go to the car dealership that's supporting your local horror host or you want to go to this other one? You know, um, you know, it was it was part of the economy and, it, you know, it's incredible. And that, the other thing that changed, too, um, was product licensing for the, the actual studios licensing their product. So it wasn't until the early 60s, I want to say it was like 63 or 62, when Universal actually released the merchandising rights, licensing rights to their intellectual property for Dracula and the, the Universal Monsters. So it's in the early 60s <laughs> where you see products start to come out. And at the same time, 
what's happening is the studios are slowly getting sucked up into you know smaller studios are being pulled into conglomerates and those conglomerates then also have interests in production and and the rest of it you know yeah it's like the universal... product placement starting at this point right right and the development of a conglomerate that can say like oh we own the rights to frankenstein and we also own the rights to this food product so if we make a Frank frankenstein food product you know, and they start mixing and matching the IPs, and then you get things like Frankenberry and the rest of it. Um, Frankenberry is obviously not uh, licensed by Universal, but it's that kind of thing where you get a product market. And then on the independent level, you have people like James Warren uh, and Myron Foss uh, and others who were creating magazines that created the market, you know, and developed the market even more. So Famous Monsters of Filmland with, uh, that James Warren started with Forrest Ackerman, came out of the the fact that it was incredibly lucrative when the shock theater package comes out and these things are being syndicated people wanted to know about what movies are we going to be watching and so you know they see the movie on tv and then oh it's on this magazine we buy the magazine um and then that becomes uh profitable but then it also becomes profitable because then universal and the movie production houses like hammer and that have a free pr going in famous monsters of film land that's now happening through like fangoria and a lot of the the horror web magazines are essentially just pr for for studios um but it's not quite as uh aesthetically pleasing as the the older product was yeah, at least absolutely. at least in my opinion it's a little bit more it's a little bit more obvious that it's just straight pr whereas in the past the independent stuff was a little bit more more at least had a little bit more fan love in it whereas now it seems to be fan love but really heavily filtered through pr for movies i mean you look at the stuff like that terrifier the terrifier and terrifier 2 like independent productions but the the level of pr marketing or any of the a24 and the bloomhouse stuff like just the the grotesque grotesque amount of marketing that like sits behind yeah because they um, just they funnel through stuff like arrow in the head and like there's kinds of websites for the review yeah i've totally noticed that how much they hype up like the bloom house or a24 yeah and there's no i mean like in my personal opinion like i just i don't like bloom house or a24 like I, I just don't like there's nothing about those movies like i actually like I, I say that to myself and then i'll be like you're being an asshole and then I'll go and look at the list of movies and I'm like, no, I really just don't like any of these. Like, I really just don't like, it's not, it's not my bag. Um, I'm interested in the, the amount of market. I mean, you saw that too, with the, um, the new scream one, right? Like they had the, uh, they had ghost face, like standing out in theaters, uh, like an actor and a ghost face thing. And then when you came up to it, it looked like a statue, but then it moved. And these were all things that they were doing with, uh, like as far back as the 1930s in terms of promotion, you know, Terrifier had a lot of news stories coming out about people vomiting when they saw it. That's straight out of William Castle and and that early yes. exposition, which, and then it goes into the, the Exorcist was when like, it's funny because, you know, the Exorcist is seen as being this movie that, you know, makes it highbrow, but it uses all the exploitation marketing techniques. I mean, the 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 vomit and the the cursed movie thing and all that stuff, it's all classic exploitation right. marketing. Right, right. Um, it's it's amazing yeah it absolutely yeah it absolutely is
my way And I have no home Sing the night bird song As I wait for daylight Hear my pen exorcist well since we're talking about the exorcist anyway i mean how much of those stories that we've heard about people fainting or throwing up oh well that's actually that's like you know how much of that is actually true i think david brings up a really good point there well actually um that's something i'm not actually going to get into this uh in my presentation but it's an interesting thing related to um Kubrick and a lot of the allegations about that because Chris Knowles and I have looked at the stuff of the exorcist and it definitely was not widespread but it seems like there were certain theaters where you saw a lot of this happening Um, and of course it's been acknowledged that there were subliminal images and things like that used in the exorcist so Chris and I kind of oh there absolutely there absolutely is I mean that's yeah there might have been certain uh let's just say devices or something put into the theaters where you did get these reports and that's where uh the connection to kubrick is really interesting 
because Kubrick did um, A Clockwork Orange in 1971, I think is when it came out. And this is, you know, it's also kind of, a, you should point out as well, that that is also basically an exploitation film. It's a very well-made one, but it's essentially a play on the juvenile delinquent uh, genre. It's you know, more or less updating Warner Brothers um, for the, uh, I guess, emerging punk rock era, if you will, which it kind of helped create. But again, it's interesting because you had all of the reports of violence linked to this movie. However, I've looked into this quite extensively, and it was almost all in the UK. And this mm -hmm. gets even more interesting because in the UK, A Clockwork Orange had not been distributed universally uh, by 73 three or 74 when Kubrick or 74 when Kubrick had it banned uh, it was only playing at certain theaters in the London area and the kind of broader area around it and specifically it was the Warner Brothers theater in London where it seems that most people in the UK saw it initially in the early 70s I think something like 50,000 people saw a Clark Clark Orange at that specific theater and incidentally it's also the London area, where they had many of the reports of violence associated with the movie. So it gets really interesting when you think about this, because Warner Brothers was really adamant about wanting Kubrick to do uh, The Exorcist to follow up A Clockwork Orange, which uh, he declined and um, mm -hmm. ended up kind of getting a compromise with Warner's where he could make Barry Lyndon in lieu of his uh, long sign after Napoleon project. And uh, I've kind of argued recently on the farm that he was effectively strong armed into making The Shining as a kind of apology to Warner's after Barry Lyndon tanked spectacularly. But anyway, it does raise some interesting questions about the reports of some of these extreme reactions to the exorcist in certain theaters in light of the fact that both the exorcist and clockwork orange were both warner brothers films and originally they had really wanted kubrick to take the reins of the exorcist so i have wondered if perhaps there was maybe a little let's just say something extra at some of the theaters uh in the case of both films that were affecting the audience besides just the subliminals well for anybody who wants to experiment with this and i think you can still rent theaters in some places yeah and shoot movies um aerosol spray if you just take some lysol um bob larson right that famous uh popular <laughs> exorcist if you go to a bob larson public performance exorcism the uh air conditioning is turned off so it is warm. Um, they spray Lysol ahead of time. Ostensibly because the idea is that it's supposed to cover up the smell of puke when it happens. But they spray so much of it and it's so warm and there's so many people packed in there getting sweaty and, you know, going into alleged Holy Spirit things and, and whatnot. Um, the second anybody actually does puke, a lot of people start puking uh Ugh. just the smell and the heat and everything so rent yourself a theater turn off the air conditioner spray lysol and say that it's to clean the air and get people packed in there and show whatever movie you think is going to trigger one person you just need one right so 
find that that four percent of the population that is super heavily hypnotizable get your puker and then you're good to go I mean, you could even have a you could have a puke ringer right like you could have a puke ringer so just get somebody who's going to puke, right? You it's, know, if you want to be the one, it could be you, right? Like just whoever, get somebody <laughs> to puke and then uh, you're good to go. It's and a mass got, up chuck. Yeah. And then you got yourself another, you know, oh my God, people came to this showing and all these people puked. It's obviously the movie. Come see it. It's so gory and horrible. You will not ever yeah. forget your experience. You know, I slipped in the puke that I threw up <laughs> after I slipped. Yeah. And- I mean, yeah. and that's that's the amazing thing with this stuff is that the actual mechanisms are so simple. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's awesome. I mean, because what you got, William Castle, uh, he wrote a, bi- a wonderful autobiography, um, and uh, you know, I think Herschel Gordon Lewis has one too. I mean, you can read how all this stuff was done. Um, there's no no mystery or magic to it. It's just old carny, <laughs> like old carnival tricks. Yeah. Yep. Oh, old oh. old old stage magic vaudeville i mean and that's what i think one of the things you know steven you're asking about the uh like the differences that i saw maybe or, the, or that might exist between like joe bob and and some of the earlier horror hosts and that um we don't know vaudeville anymore like nobody now like i mean would the would would even like baby boomers or anything like have even have seen maybe they would have seen like tail in vaudeville on tv or something or maybe like in a movie um but we don't know vaudeville right we don't know sideshows we don't know carnival um we don't know these stage traditions that existed that that had all these tricks right grand guignol like was was doing gore on theater in theater right like on stage they were doing realistic because the whole thing with grand guignol was that they didn't want it to be like a theatrical murder they wanted it to be what looked to be a real murder on stage um and like if you're going to do that it has to be theatrical in the sense that you're on stage and people need to see it so it's got to be a lot of blood it's got to be gory but they wanted it to look realistic and they're doing things like having people's eyes stabbed out and having decapitations. You think of like, um, Alice Cooper's like decapitation, like stage show, right. Um, those kind of things, but we don't, for the most part, our culture doesn't have access to that stuff anymore at, at the, at the sophisticated level that it was at when that was the thing that you had. Uh, we just don't have that. But these people that were putting out movies in the 60s and 70s, like some of them, like Castle and and that, they did have it and they did know about it. And the studios since, you know, again, since the 30s with horror movies and well, what would become horror movies, um, they were using those promotional techniques, right? Um, like the vomiting thing, uh, is it Mark of the Devil that comes out in like 67 or something? It's an Italian. There was something big associated with that one. Yeah, Mark of the Devil, I think, is the one that is, they had the vomit bags, right? And just the mere associate, like, if you have, if you have a sophisticated audience, it's it would maybe be a little bit more difficult. But when you have a mass audience of people, just have, handing them a vomit bag, some people just the very fact that they were handed a vomit bag when they walk in are going to be primed to throw up if something shows up on the screen. You know, I mean, there's yeah. the, the the psychology behind it is actually it's fairly simple. Yeah, it's um, like it's like it's like a it's like a form of psychological warfare in a sense. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, if you if you look at the way that uh, 
the exorcist was promoted as a book right um the the promotions of the novel itself um they're all about contagion so and i'm not talking about like the promotion to the 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 buying public but the promotion to the bookstores and the booksellers was the idea of contagion that this novel is so effective that it's going to possess the audience to buy it right like that's the kind of language that's being used um so again just a, a really there's a really clear awareness that these psychological tricks can be used to amp people up and to sell your product i mean because that's what you see i mean with horror like the number one thing with horror is money it, it makes so much damn money it's not even funny i mean it's just like halloween 78 when john carpenter put that out that movie <laughs> just made so much money it changed the entire film industry and as as uh I don't know if Carpenter said it or uh, if it was Brian DePaul. Somebody basically commented that after Halloween 78, independent movies were done because you couldn't do it anymore because it made so much money that all the studios knew that the second anything looked like it could make money, they would take it. And that's where Friday the 13th comes out. Friday the 13th is admittedly and openly a direct ripoff of Halloween in the sense that they just wanted to make a movie that was the same kind of thing as Halloween to make money. The first Friday the 13th and the second one happened to actually be, uh, you know, arguably good movies. Um, but uh, the the idea behind them was basically just to make money off that, that concept. You know, um, obviously the slasher genre, uh, which I don't really, a lot of people think like Halloween 78 is the, the first slasher, but I don't know. It's a little, I, I respect Carpenter's, vision for that movie a little bit more than to say that but um the slasher genre itself is is easy to do you know just person with a knife or weapon of whatever whatever sort and and killing you know but you'd make a ton of money off of it and you see that now too where um you know horror movies are they're just raking in cash when other movies aren't doing too well and this is it's amazing what's amazing to me is that for as savvy as occasionally studios seem um they don't get it like they, they like don't they don't understand like there's a playbook here that you can go by and they just keep fumbling it because um horror has always done well if you do it right like there's never been a time where horror was not uh profitable um and every time that horror has kind of risen up it's risen up as the studios fail to understand the culture fail to understand how to get product into the culture fail to understand what the culture wants, um, continuously make the same crap again and again and again that nobody wants to see. And then somebody comes out with a horror movie that's slightly different and weird and titillating and people are excited by it and then it makes money. And then a few years later, suddenly all the studios are going, oh my God, we all need to make horror. Um, I've noticed is, a massive uptick. It, in, it, is, yeah. is that because the there's a disconnection from those roots because like the old horror world was connected to these even earlier worlds of the carnival and vaudeville well, and things like that. No, cause the studios were fucking it up then too. I yeah. mean, they were, they were screwing up then too. I mean, they were, uh, you know, I mean, Halloween comes out like around the studios, right? Like, um, the Rosemary's baby the and the exorcist were, were kind of 
pulling on the popularity of Psycho, but when Psycho got put out, and I mean, obviously Night of the Living Dead, right? Like Romero, that was a an independent film. Um, and when Psycho came out, like they were, that was them kind of screwing Hitchcock and not giving him everything he wanted to make a film. Like, and so he made this really minimalist vision off the Robert Block thing and made it amazing. And then it became this huge sensation. But when they, when the studios were, were putting that together, like they were fighting Hitchcock the whole way through, uh, you know, he was fighting to make that movie. So um and it yeah. should have been obvious because i mean he did that too i think with like a lot of the crew from alfred hitchcock presents but yeah, yeah i mean it's you know that's really the big advantage that horror has always had because it's perpetually popular i mean almost everybody likes to, a good ghost story or something but yeah. to the point it's horror is a genre that you don't need a lot of money to do an effective film in fact a lot of the best horror films did not have big budgets they yeah, had very exactly. very minimalistic budgets so the cost effectiveness i mean you really can't beat it yeah and the i mean and the other you know again the 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 script is there to do it right like um the the Jacques turner movies like cat people and um curse of the demon and uh i walked with a zombie and that stuff all of those were a reaction to the universal movies but rko didn't have the money that universal had to put to put into these big lavish sets and everything so Jacques Turner and Val Luton made these really stripped down, uh, really beautiful, not simple, but I mean, like very rich movies on limited budgets with limited settings and scene and the whole thing. Um, and, you know, limited special effects, limited uh, creature effects and stuff. And yet still were able to capture that psychological thing just through suggestion and actual cinema, right? Like, like actual filmmaking skill like you know like how do you make a film that's not just like holding the camera there and, and getting a scene but like actually using the techniques of filmmaking to create a film um they were able to create these these amazing uh some of the greatest you know horror cinema that's been made on low budget um as a reaction to universal you know again as a reaction to universal universal was making a ton of money RKO came in, didn't have the money to put into the movies, but could, you know, do it. And AIP was the the same way, you know, um, when Roger Corman, like Roger, well, an interesting thing about the horror syndication thing too, like Roger Corman's Poe movies, which everybody loves and, and a lot of people who know Corman know him through the Poe movies first. Um, those movies were funded on AIP selling the syndication rights to their catalog prior to those movies like literally up to the year just selling those those uh licensing rights to television stations um to fund the color movies that that became the you know the post series that corman was doing that made that reinvigorated vincent price's career and all that um those those movies in color were made as a direct result to try to compete with hammer horror who were competing with the old universal movies and make remaking those. I mean, it's this conversation that continues and you can see it, but for whatever reason, the studios a lot of times themselves don't see that happening. And they don't, you know, in the past, we can point to these moments where like, oh, this was a reaction to this and that. But, you know, since the nineties and definitely into now, like the studios have just failed uh, to really like, to really capture that and the simplicity of it. 
And also, I mean, in some sense, I guess directors and writers have failed too, because we really haven't seen a lot of uh, new, interesting kind of contemporary innovative stuff that isn't reactionary or sort of activist oriented stuff yeah, there's like not really cinema i mean blair witch would probably be the last instance of that right because that was another movie where i mean it was made for like what fifty thousand dollars or something yeah. like that. i mean it had made yeah. i mean 100 million or something the first run and it was a very novel at the time approach to horror yeah and using and again using the exploitation the the exploitation uh manual right like this is just going right by the book like you know is this real is this not real um that's that's straight out of texas chainsaw massacre you yeah, know more, that more wasn't recent, first more recent example would be like paranormal activity which is only I think made for ten thousand dollars and it was not yeah expensive at all skinnamary i mean well actually the most one, all in one setting and <clears throat> skinnamary right like that i think that's the the most most recent where it was just that's even less right like that's just like two kids that you never see their face in a dark house like on uh baby monitor cameras do you know the movie i'm talking about what's the movie skinnamarink skinnamary skinnamarink yeah i'm not familiar with that one no idea really? no. wow 2002 or 2022 um what was it? Uh, its budget was fifteen thousand, and it made two point one million dollars in the box office. And it literally is just a dark house, like filmed on like baby monitors with two kids who you never see their face and uh, stuff happening. And it's just, and it's it's also kind of in the slow cinema genre, where uh, like nothing happens. <laughs> it's like it's just like this, you know however long the movie goes i think it's like an hour and 43 minutes of just like kind of ambient footage of a house with two kids that like slowly progress into terror and you can kind of see like you know to kind of illustrate what you're getting at i mean i'm thinking of dimension doing like what was it halloween 8 i think um where they tried to like knock off the Blair Witch Project or something by having a lot of it shot like what was security cams. It was the one that Coolio, I think, or no, Buster Rhymes maybe was in. But um, yeah, it's just even though it's it's not a big budget movie, it's still like two to three million dollars or something. It's absolute yeah. shit. Whereas I mean, these kids are able to go out and do something like that for like ten thousand dollars and i mean it's it's a hundred times better it's incredible that they could mess this up so thoroughly yeah it's just, i don't know i don't understand what the because i mean if they want to make mo- i don't understand like i don't like i don't understand why in you know like you can look at like the 80s right and you can see somebody like de Laurentiis and like not all of De Laurentiis's movies that he produced are like the great, the best movies, but they're all really lavish. And you could see, you could see why he would put his money into it. You know, like you can see why he would produce Conan the Barbarian. And that movie has stood the test of time. You know, like why did they have the haircut on james earl jones the way they had it like who knows (laughs) right like that's not the best the best costuming choice but at the end of the day the movie you can watch it again and again and it's great and like that's you know it it has a vision and you can see all the De Laurentiis stuff and you can be like okay 
I can see why this producer would put this money into it and they're going to get their money back while also like kind of having a vision for what they wanted. You know, this kind of lavish, like uh, epic kind of thing. But why producers would spend money to produce this just garbage when again there's a there's a freaking playbook like you, you can just look at history like you could look at it and say like the, if we just at least have these things this will be this will be successful you know and instead they're like well let's just have a bunch of this other stuff and uh yeah we're gonna spend like 200 million dollars on this and you know i mean it's just it's weird i know when you're making a film it you don't always know what's going to come out on the other end um but it just seems to me like if you just maybe like planned it out a little bit better there was a there was a recent article on uh marvel where they were talking about why the marvel streaming series have done so poorly and there was like a bullet point list of like what they had learned quote unquote and it was things like having the same showrunner for the show like well uh yeah you think like you need somebody to kind of like brand manage your show like yeah of course you do um you know like having consistency in scripts what of course like what the i mean it was like the list was like this this list of like oh wow you literally just had a bunch of business executives just screwing off and not knowing how to make a movie pretending to make movies and tv shows when these people had no freaking experience, obviously, in actual like creation of a media product, because the stuff that was on the, you know, on the bullet point was all basic. This is how you make a film or this is how you make a series. So, you know, I mean, part of it could just be that the, the people who are involved now are just straight business people. And they really yeah. just are so stupid that they don't know how to, to make a movie. You it's know, probably just a lot more that corporate decision making, too many cooks yeah. in the kitchen. I mean, probably yeah. the same as like what what the music industry is like now for the most part. Or well, yeah, or the comic I mean, industry, yeah, or publishing. Yeah, I mean, it's all kind of being eaten alive by business people who are. I mean, that's been. I mean, I think a trend with Hollywood, especially for years now. I mean, because say what you want about the old movie moguls for all their faults, and I mean, they were certainly legion, but a lot of them genuinely love the medium. I mean, at least yeah. You just, I mean, the new generation now, I mean, it's pretty much entirely run by, you know, former lawyers and um, accountants. So, I mean, I suppose we shouldn't really be surprised at that. Potato chip marketers. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, anyway, let's uh, let's get into some other horror movies here. Uh, Sergio, I know you're a fan of People Under the Stairs. That's one of my favorite ones as well. And it's certainly criminally overlooked in terms of uh, in terms of Wes Craven's overture. Uh, yeah. So what are your thoughts on that one, man? Well, like you said, it is very overlooked, uh, you know, in prepping for this, I was just looking for some uh, interviews with Wes Craven talking about it. Uh, and it would be just like, maybe, you know, they, they would give him like 30 seconds and then it would just go straight to the, the next of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise that he did after it. But yeah, people under, under the stairs comes out one year before the LA riots and really shows this, uh, various stress points in society. Um, that's one of the reasons I really like it. It has that socioeconomic thing going on. And, uh, I think it's, it's really a modern, modern Dracula like movie in that these, uh, I know you, you mentioned earlier, uh, Dave about like Adam's family being this, this weird kind of leftover gilded or, or feudal family. But I think 
people under the stairs, this, this couple, the Robesons are like these, uh, modern day nobility. You know, they literally like own everyone's, uh, properties and they're going to be, uh, destroying the building of the, that the protagonists live in, uh, to, to build some condos. So it's really early kind of foreshadowing of the gentrification that would, that would, you know, really take over America later. Um, it starts with a tarot card spread. So I thought that was kind of interesting when I, when I revisited it here a few days ago. Well, also um, too, this, because the kid is called, um, the main kid is called fool too. That's like his nickname. And you have that sort of symbolism also, if you, you know, subscribe to the Crowleyan notion of the fool as being a stand in for the wandering prince and all that other stuff too. It's interesting in that context, especially. Yeah. And so like this, uh, this, couple of evil landlords you know they had this backstory that their their family started as a, a funeral home operators and eventually uh, started buying up property and basically own the whole hood it seems like and um you know more that kind of dracula-esque theme the house is like you know this fortified castle that, that used to be a funeral home and this couple is just totally psycho. Uh, the casting was inspired by Twin Peaks. So you've got uh, the actor and actress who played Big Ed and Nadine in uh, in Twin Peaks. And they got really great chemistry. But it turns out they're actually uh, siblings. And uh, these children that they are uh, you know keeping at their house um, are not their actual children they are uh seem to be like kidnapping and the ones who run afoul of their uh insane religious uh restrictions they uh put under the stairs and they have to resort to cannibalism and like one gets away and lives in the walls but it was always my favorite but yeah like you say it's it's really criminally uh overlooked and uh, I really like it because it has this uh, real life horror of uh, some of the um, class warfare aspects of America. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's also important in sort of the context that David was alluding to with the evolution of what we would now think of as the modern horror genre, because it, you know, it comes out of Gothic literature and in the early um, adaptations into film, this is really where it's set in like these old European castles, yeah. but something like Psycho, you start to see it brought into the suburbs, but the white suburbs. And I think, obviously, I mean, People Under the Stairs wasn't the first, but it was, I think, uh, crucial in popularizing the concept of putting or in a contemporary African-American community uh, that maybe yeah. is not in the best socioeconomic condition. So that is another aspect of this movie that is so overlooked. It's, in my opinion, it is really profoundly influential in that context. Yeah, definitely. I could see how I think that, uh, unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, they're working on a remake. Jordan Peele is, and uh, I will be boycotting it because I love the original so much. Oh, uh, is but, he really? Yeah. Because, you and, know, he, well, I guess his, he produced it, but another movie very similar is Candyman. And yeah, they redid yeah. that like a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So he's probably coming for, for everything pretty much to redo it who knows it might be all right but uh i uh i'm too fond of the original and 
in the research of this, I was really looking for this, um, for Craven's inspiration. And he, he says in interviews, you know, he was inspired by this real life newspaper article. He supposedly read in the seventies where some robbers find some children being held captive as they're robbing a house. But I could not find any trace of this damn article. It's uh, likely so, though. I mean, that's, that's likely that he did see that. Cause he, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was inspired by articles as well. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. Craven about amazing. people in the Hmong community having yeah. mm-hmm. night terrors that would co- that would cause heart attacks. And, yeah, you know, yeah, so. exactly. And I mean, Craven's amazing for his uh, for his social vision that he yeah. that he puts into these things, and like, and just how passionate he was about that being why he was making movies. You know, and it's and it, but the thing that I love about it is they're not movies that you necessarily think like, like Last House on the Left, right? Like that is not a movie I ever want to see again. But if you listen to some (laughs) of his interviews, he says he didn't want people to go back to it. This was not a movie that he wanted people to see again and again and again and be like, "Oh, I'm watching Last House on the Left this week and want to come over." Like his whole thing was was it was in reaction to the Vietnam War and the violence that was going on in society real life horror yeah he wanted to bring it back to the audiences who who weren't over there who weren't seeing that and who who had no experience of that and he wanted to bring them into a theater and say hey this is what's happening and but he knew that if he did a war movie they wouldn't get that experience but if he brought them into it through a classic story i mean the story that he uses is the um the same one that uh um Oh, I'm forgetting his name. The guy who did Seventh Seal, um, Ingmar, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, Ingmar Bergman did. Uh, was it this? Uh, I forget what the name of the movie is, but oh, uh, Seven Springs or some Virgins. Gosh, I know what you're. Yeah, talking. yeah, 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 yeah. And so he was using a, a traditional story, um, and then you know bringing it into this you know contemporary kind of setting that was, but it was off from war. It was just people. And it was a family and it was, you know, so bringing that to people, that social vision through the things, you know, or the the scene, the the dream uh, deaths in the Hmong community, and he brings it into Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, there's critiques of psychology in Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I mean, uh, well, he was such all, a well, he was such a uh, yeah. well-learned man. Um, yeah, he was a so he really English, put these influences. Yeah, in. he was in the rainbow story. too. I mean, just a lot of the commentary on the, the situation in Haiti in the time frame that slipped into that movie. I mean, that's another one that's so compelling in that context. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big Craven fan. Um, so yeah, I mean, he really captures the the zeitgeist of the time. You know, a year later, the L.A. riots break out. Um, it's kind of a uh, time capsule it's even got uh, a brief uh shot with some of that um gulf war night vision footage going on mm-hmm. for a second mm-hmm. so it's 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 definitely of the time and it its flow is a little weird uh i mean i guess if no one's if someone hasn't seen it uh it's about uh this kid who is enlisted to help rob these rich landlords but they end up getting stuck in there because they're totally crazy and uh hoarding gold and money uh but yeah it's just really this this uh time capsule of that time and the the class conflict that's going on so it's it's been 
been one of my favorites and kind of like foreshadowing that America is returning to feudalism and these kind of lords who are going to be ruling the neighborhoods. Yeah, I watched it the other night, Sir Phil. Oh, awesome. Yeah, what what are your thoughts since that's fresh? I've just seen it so much. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I'd seen some bits and pieces of it before. Um, And actually met, like I said, I actually met a guy that was in it. He was like one of the cops, which is funny. Did you recognize uh, him? I recognize him. Yeah, I saw okay, him. Okay, cool. Um, you know, yeah, I, I I caught some of the social. I caught definitely caught the social commentary, and, and some of the stuff about oh, it's 1991 and the little weird part with the TV with like the Gulf War um, similarity similarities on there, and yeah, it was it was it was an interesting little movie. You know, I thought that. You know, it was it was definitely a good critique of landlords and the rich. That's for damn sure. I think he said specifically that he wanted to um, portray this couple as uh, what he thought the Republican America, according to him. Oh uh, yeah, looked like well, it's most pathological. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I kind of I kind of thought about that, and I whenever whenever I was watching it, I was kind of thinking about the you remember the couple that were in uh, St. Louis that were standing out there with the guns while the BLM protesters walked by. Yeah, definitely. That's actually yeah, people that I thought about when I was, when I was watching the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was like kind of the era too, of David Duke being elected in Louisiana too. Yeah. So it was like, around that same time. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, but that crazy kind of just like, you know, of course you got mentality. Yeah, yeah, and you got this the, the guys walking around and like he looks normal, but then he's like wearing a gimp suit for some odd reason. You know, it's just it's it's bizarre. Yeah, yeah that's a pretty scary part of it. Yeah. It's uh well, I mean, I um it's also to me quite remarkable the longevity Craven had uh and just how innovative he remained really throughout his career because I was just thinking in the 90s um when a lot of people kind of think that he slowed down a little bit but i mean honestly people under the stairs is in my opinion so pivotal mm-hmm. and really establishing urban horror uh you had Wes craven's new nightmare which i thought was a fantastic reinvent uh, <clears throat> reimagining of the nightmare series and uh certainly breaking the third wall effectively sort of merging reality with fiction and that uh in a lot of ways it even surpasses what john carpenter tried to do within the mouth of madness of course craven put himself in there as a character with so many of the other actors from the first one and then of course scream sort of bringing the uh you know the whole pulp fiction stylings and trappings to the horror genre again i mean you could maybe point to something like popcorn as a precursor to that and that would be a fair point but scream really i think sort of popularized that self-referential aspect of horror that sadly became a little too prevalent by the late 90s but uh, even then you can just see how craven was able to still continue to stand as an innovator in the genre when again and i I love john carpenter he's probably my third all-time favorite director behind kubrick or lynch but you know carpenter was it's running out of steam a little bit by the 90s with the exception of in the mouth of madness whereas um craven was still uh quite creative and innovative in this era yeah, yeah and i think well i mean you know craven uh he kept he kept going I mean, craven even wrote a novel 
you know i mean he was he he was active and and fully creative i think like carpenter admittedly was done <laughs> he was done you know what i mean like carpenter carpenter's a curmudgeonly kind of person not you know not, not no critique in that but like he he definitely has his opinions and that's the way it is you know he did and, influence synth wave though you got to give him that oh no i love carpenter i mean like Carp- i'm right there with steven like carpenter's one of my absolute favorite directors and and i i absolutely love i love his stuff and his movie his the soundtrack stuff amazing oh know? yeah well when i watched uh like last year was um prince of darkness i'd never seen that one yeah oh yeah prince of darkness is, and that was so ahead of its time because yeah. that's all the stuff yeah. with quantum physics in it i mean you go back and read some of the reviews when it came out and how much they mock the plot line with that with the perception of like jesus as an extraterrestrial and stuff and just now i mean this is like practically like standard stuff in a lot of supernatural <laughs> themed yeah. horror movies and oh, yeah. God, the whole thing with the tachyons enabling to send the broadcast back off uh, in the future I mean, yeah, is, I, I will. Really I will. I, I will actually give you a movie that that tackles that about ten years before that movie, and I guess you could call it a horror movie. It's it's kind of a strange mishmash of a lot of different movie, of different genres, because it was made by Larry Cohen. Oh, yeah. Several different kinds of movies. He did horror yeah. movies. He did also black exploitation movies. Larry Cohen's amazing. Yeah, he he did a movie called God Told Me To. Yeah, that movie's incredible. Yes, it is. That movie is is incredible. It is a wonderful mess of a movie. I mean, it's like it's like it's like a police procedural. (laughs) It's a horror film. It's a it's an ancient aliens UFO film. Yeah, it's like it's a it 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 it, 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 he just throws some black exploitation in there just just for the hell of it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's true. And he's and and he's filming it in the middle of the streets of New York, and like you can see people, and he he didn't get a permit to film. So you can see people looking at the camera in the crowd. <laughs> and then Andy Kaufman's in it too. Yeah, it's yeah, as a police officer, right? As, as a police a, officer. Yeah, he's one yes. of the cops. That movie, yeah. If you guys haven't seen that, like, oh, you gotta watch God Told Me To. It is it's beautiful. It's it's a beautiful movie. Um yeah. that he uh yeah, I actually I watched that uh in preparation for the UFO uh UFO and horror course that I did with Diana Hasalka um and just i fell in love with larry cohen and and immediately watched everything that he had like he had put out because that movie was just it's it's such a it's one of those movies like you said like no permits right like he's just out like in the 70s making this movie uh in the streets but like there's such an obvious like love of the process of making a movie like that and just i mean and you're right it's a mess of a movie it's just all sort of just jammed in there it's like good home cooking you know it's just like yeah everything's yeah. thrown into the pot like we're just going to cook it up it's going to rich and, and richard lynch with a vagina in his, in his belly <laughs> yeah, it's like this yeah it's just like uh yeah <laughs> oh man like simpsons like uh mr burns glowing kind of kind of figure oh it's yeah it's amazing it is a yeah. beautiful it's a beautiful and it's i and think the illuminati shows up it's like yeah it's, yeah it's, yeah <laughs> it's, it's incredible it's I, amazing 
it is it's it's beautiful yeah and it's a police procedural too which is like the, like the best part is like it's just like a straight up police procedural it's, it's amazing <laughs> and then he did uh cue the winged serpent right after uh-huh. that right and i haven't seen that serpent. one oh my god you, you gotta see cue the winged serpent oh i got to live right that that one's incredible and that one uh, uh in the critiques of it so uh samuel arkoff from aip had produced it and uh <laughs> i forget who it was who was reviewing it but they told arkoff that like uh a lot of it was good um and then there was uh a lot of it was just cheesy crap and arkoff was like the cheesy crap was mine <laughs> like that was that was all me which was funny because it was like they like if you watch God, I would recommend if you haven't seen either one of these, I would watch God Told Me To first so that you see like Larry Cohen's vision and then watch Cue the Winged Serpent, which got paid for by Arkoff. So you will see the exploitation stuff being added on to Cohen's version. But because of the way that Cohen works with just sort of a mishmash, it really doesn't matter because like the exploitation stuff is just so like there's your exploitation move moment, you know, and then you're on to the next like piece, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't affect the the film at all. Um, other than that, it's just like sitting there awkwardly as like this moment of like, oh, wow, that's gratuitous. Like, okay. And then on to the next like thing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, he also did the stuff in the eighties, which yeah, I've like. seen the a stuff. Like. Yeah. A lot of people don't like that. I love it. I love the stuff. Yeah. Well, Adam, you uh, want to give us a little preview of what we can look forward here to uh, in this year's Strange Realities to wrap up? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. Um, so, uh, all three people—well, besides myself—all three people here are speaking at Strange Realities, and just to kind of tell everybody when it is uh, it's no, it, we're coming up. Well, as we're recording this, it's well. But you're putting this out, so it's going to be this coming weekend. I'll say that. It's time gonna travel put, going on. It's it's time travel. I'm trying to keep everything uh, straight. Yeah, we'll be but, people will be hearing this on October 30th. So okay. we're, we're recording this before then, obviously. <laughs> so, so this coming weekend, Friday, November 3rd through through Sunday, November the 5th, we are going to be doing the Strange Realities Conference coming back in nashville tennessee and we're also going to be online the whole conference is online and we are going to be um doing some things a little bit different this year so in previous years we were last two years we were at sir and we streamed it online uh this year we are doing that but we're only doing that for two days we're going to be there on the evening of the third and all day on the fourth which is that saturday and on the 5th is going to be an online only day so that is going to be three that's going to be six speakers on that day uh, mr metcalf is one of those so he's going to be speaking uh, that day too so uh are the the but the tickets uh to get in is 70 dollars um that's for the that's for the on-site location um on friday friday and saturday and also that will get you into the streaming group to uh to watch the all the whole the whole thing on online uh and for 30 dollars online access uh it's 30 dollars for the online access only surfio is going to be starting us off 
Uh, we have Mallory Swinski. We have Zach Hunt. We have Tim Banal. That's going to be all on Friday on Friday evening. And on Saturday, we're going to have Cheslin Vance, Brent Rains, Ren Collier is coming back, Kiki Dombrowski coming back, Tobias Whalen, uh, some guy named Steven Snyder. I'm not quite sure who that is. <laughs> uh nathan isaac from the penny royal podcast and joshua cutchin is going to finish this off on that saturday and on sunday which is the online only day that is christopher ernst mr medcalf here aaron gullius michael hughes soraya Askath, and timothy renner uh so that is our lineup for this for, for this thing and it's a, it's a pretty mighty lineup and we should also say that uh we have steve berg as the master of ceremonies this year is there anything that you want to add to any of that, Sergio? Uh, just that both Stephen and David are strange realities veterans, and um, yes, I definitely think listeners of the farm would uh, enjoy themselves if you can't make it physically. Um, if you're going to hear it here, it's obviously a pretty short notice, but the streaming uh, element is really great. It's only $30 for the three days and uh, you can go back and watch recordings. So make sure, you know, catch up on everything that you missed. Um, it's really great and interactive as well on there uh, with the chat in real time and everything. And even like the workshops and participatory things we have uh stream as well and we have ways to participate in those workshops uh just as well as if you were there uh in fact uh Cheslin said that the hypnotic session might actually work better if you're not there and you are online so what's the hypnotic session uh she's going to be she's a hypnotherapist is it going to be the uh uh starseed odyssey are we all going to be awakened we may be she's <laughs> definitely going to put you in a trance well that's awesome that's so, a, I, love, I love a good like guided uh hypnosis session those are always fun yeah yeah we, we, we are gonna we are definitely gonna have a hypnosis session to start the day to get your day going on saturday yeah, morning get you primed for strange realities that's a, that's a get you really primed for maybe we some got... hypnotic suggestions throughout the day maybe you know maybe. Some, somebody will cluck like a chicken so but, so really this stuff that we were talking about with the exorcist and the the you know the, i'm sure there won't be any vomiting at strange realities but um i'll make sure to bring some lysol <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> really, have to turn have to turn the air conditioning off we let people better. drink too so we probably don't want to encourage yeah you, you got a ten thousand dollar insurance thing that you can you can buy with your ticket and there's an ambulance out front kind of kind of thing <laughs> on the side um, yeah, I should say though too about tickets. I mean, I, I want to make sure that everybody knows. Everybody knows this that uh, just in case there's some confusion, the whole thing is online. Um, we're only calling it the online only day because that's just going to be the speakers are not going to be at SIR. Um, yeah, it's a but, hybrid. Oh, it's a, a beautifully done hybrid uh, conference. It is. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And I think I mean the the neat thing too is that you've got the online, you've got the live right um and the folks who are online get to interact through the chat and the message uh there's also the the facebook group right um so it's a ton of interaction you're interacting with the speakers when they're not speaking um folks who are there at the event they're also on their phones and stuff so they can chat in the yeah. groups 
So it's really a, a wonderful example of, yeah. of hybrid uh, event, you know, where no matter where you are, whether you're in, you know, in Nashville at the place with the people, or if you're online, um, you can interact with everybody. Uh, there's a, a good community around strange realities and conspiracy normal and that. So even after the fact, the conversation continues. Um, it's just a really, a really great event. And your, your speaker lineup, you've got folks covering all different aspects of the topics. Everyone uh, who listens mm -hmm. to The Farm loves uh, from, you know, paranormal topics, theological topics, cultural topics, uh, you know, I mean, the mysteries of various sorts, um, Seraphiel, I know your presentation is going to be uh, on fire with uh, some good, good insights into some psychogeography and uh, different, different connections. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're listening, and you are so inclined, I would highly, highly, highly recommend uh, participating in strange realities because there's nothing else like it. You will you will enter into into a strange reality and you'll enjoy yourself. Guys, thank take, you for that, Dave. <laughs> thank you, David. That was glowing. Uh, guys, take David's suggestion there. Yeah. Come yeah. come sign up. You can find tickets at strangerealitiesconference.com. Tickets are $70 for the in-person, and that's for the whole weekend, and $30 for the whole weekend solely online. Yeah, and, and we were talking earlier about Comedy Central. If folks don't know Steve Berg, uh, Drunk Histories, right? Yeah, yeah, so, Steve Berg I mean, was on Drunk History several times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we got, we got an all-star cast here uh, that you have access to in-person or online, and that's that's wonderful. And hypnosis sessions. I mean, you're, and what hypnosis other, sessions. What other conference are you going to go to where it starts off with you know a, a, a hypnotic priming for you to to enter into a, a proper state of mind to experience these things? Yeah, you know, for I don't. sure. For sure. And you can keep that state of mind going, and uh, you can drink beer and and yeah. and order hot chicken delivery and just eat it right there while you watch your presentation. Yeah, yeah. But really, though, it is informal and people have a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, you know, you're not it's yeah. not a stuffy hotel um, uh, uh, event room. No, and it's not stuffy people. And I think that's what's awesome. It actually is a conversation. You know, it's not just like you're not just sitting yeah. there listening to somebody yap about ideas. Um, and there's pretty much no hierarchy. Like after, you know, after the presentation, you can talk to the speakers and presenters and everyone hangs out the whole time. And, uh, you know, there's no like shuttling people away to backstage or, you know, there's no real, no green room. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Steven. They can't, they can't hide. <laughs> the speakers can't hide. You can, you can hunt them down throughout the, the event. And of course, uh, Adam, I mean, has also had it set up where there's a, uh, a deal with the hotel, um, where the speakers are staying at too and i mean i know you know i'll probably be hanging out a couple of nights i'm sure everybody else will too so the interaction interaction even continues uh at least if you're there in person i mean after the the presentations are done i mean we're usually out in the lobby um pretty deep into the night discussing things so i mean it's it really is a wonderful experience on a lot of levels yes it, it absolutely is you guys want to if you can stay at the hotel or somewhere close to the hotel, which there are plenty of hotels around that area, then uh, 
definitely uh you should you should hang out and experience that with us well uh i think that's a good note here to uh, wrap things up on uh, i want to thank you guys very much for uh, dropping by and uh looking forward to seeing uh, adam and serfio here in a couple of weeks well i mean it'll be a couple of days actually by the time this is out but you know this is uh the whole twin peaks time loop thing at play here i guess or something to that effect who knows maybe we're all stuck in the black lodge it certainly seems like that in 2023 anyway. Well, on that note, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And do consider checking out Strange Realities 2023. And with that, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck Voodoo blue got juice in it Swallow what I'm about to spit Don't got 86 from the copper queen For singing this I took it to the gold chain Blu-ray my people there They feeling me Down low skin roll More characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry y'all I ain't in a hurry y'all Come on baby pick me up Stuck down in the stick, hut is hot as hell I tell you what, put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around, come on mama jump down Turn around, do it for me, stick it out Say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump baby we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Joy, you looking for? See you 
you all on payday. See you at the Safeway. Bisbee lives on crazy checks. BP on that fast pay. I sing my hoodie blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just that one. Th-